0: As I understand it the subject right now is healing prayers and how to do that but I think I need more guidance so I need more questions you have completely disappeared <laughs> maybe you should come or, come over to the man side over here <laughs> all right so uh, what can I how can I help you and if you don't mind speaking into the mic it just makes it easier for the recording how can I help you this evening hello ashaji uh, very often uh, we wish to help people but um, we tend to take their negativity into ourselves right so we know that master told swamiji that you have to be in a um, in a mentally you should be only in a, this thing of giving not of receiving but it's very hard to understand exactly how to um, to achieve that tell me the phrase you said swami master told swamiji what you should be in a in an attitude of only of giving and not of receiving um may i is there a context to that statement or is that just as much as you know of that i think there was a story in the path where uh-huh. he says that he was oh, shaking hands with everyone right. in church right. and he was receiving their negativity a- so. actually the interpretation of that story is slightly different so i'm glad that we have a clarity on it okay very good, so is there more to your question? Because no. it's a very good question. Okay, no, the, the question um, well you, everybody heard it, so I don't have to repeat it, but let me think about it for a minute. You know th- that when, whenever you tune in to someone, the first part I'll deal with is receiving negativity or not, when you tune in to someone to pray for them, to a certain extent you do put yourself on their wavelength. And so there have been occasions when I've said to someone, for example, if they're in a really contentious or negative situation with someone, like someone is um, really angry at them and is behaving in such a way as to really try to pull them down, which happens sometimes in life, of course. I've said to people, don't even pray for them, you know, because if you pray for them, you'll put yourself in tune. And when they're actively trying to pull you down... You don't you don't want to open yourself, even to that extent, because it's matter of who has the greater magnetism. If somebody's magnetism for negativity is greater than your magnetism to overcome that negativity, you may be um, pulled pulled down from it. That's uh, why the custom of shaking hands. Uh, is is somewhat questionable because, as Master said, you make a horseshoe magnet when you reach out with some someone's hands and if they have... Ma- ma- whoever has a stronger magnetism will influence the other and if the magnetism is not compatible with yours or not desirable for you, it can set you up and this is why the idea of just pronoming without actually making contact uh, in many ways spiritually is a better way to do it. Of course, times are changing. And most people are not awful. And, you know, mostly when you just shake hands, you just shake hands and nothing happens uh, of any consequence. But it's still, it's an interesting fact that he mentioned. But when you're tuning in on a subtle level, you are really making a link with the person. And so the energy can go both ways. Now, I don't mean that if a person is sad and you pray for them, you'll feel their sadness because almost everybody that you're praying for as some difficulty or else you wouldn't be praying for them and that would pretty much cut you out of the whole system of being able to pray for people the only time i've ever recommended that was when somebody was actively in, in a few cases where someone is actively against you you don't want to align yourself with them at all i just say tell divine mother that you wish them well and then leave it in her hands and tell her that you're really not going to put your mind on that person at all because you don't want to make any kind of a link with them. As a rule, um, let let me just think about this for a minute. If if one does Kriya, if one is a meditator, if one is a disciple, if one is devoted to God, we don't have to be that afraid about picking up other people's negative energy. Um, The positive force of a prayer creates a lot of magnetism, so there has to be a really strong other force But, you know, Mary Kretzman, who at Ananda Village runs the prayer council there and has made a very, very big study of it, has what she calls her her superstar prayer people, and certain requests she only gives to them. (coughs) Because she knows, (coughs) because she knows then, you know, that their energy will be strong enough people who are very mentally ill, people who are being very influenced by negative energy, people who have committed suicide, you know, where the the energy is really (coughs) downward-pulling. She'll give it to her superstars and just not give it to the ordinary people. But most of the time, I think we should have faith that God will allow us to give and we don't have to be concerned, which brings me to the question the story that you're quoting. The story was Master asking Swamiji to stand in his place and shake hands with people. See, here, Master's having you shake hands with people. Master himself shook hands with people because, of course, he had greater magnetism for good than any of them had for worldliness. Um, But he asked Swami to stand in his place and shake hands with people. And the first time Swami did it, at the end of it, he was absolutely exhausted. Now, he wasn't... It wasn't that he got their negativity, and it wasn't that he was pulled down. What he actually said is that he was simply drained of energy. And Master said, "That's because you're thinking, you're thinking too much about yourself." He said, "You're thinking I'm giving," and he said, "You're, to Swamiji, you're you're acting in my, as my as my channel. And if you forget yourself and just allow yourself to be a channel for His energy." then uh, ever thereafter when Swami did it, he felt both uplifted and energized rather than the opposite. So again, it wasn't anything about their energy pulling him down. It was that he himself, when you think of yourself too as we are, then our energy is finite. And when people start drawing on it, we start worrying about how much energy they're taking from us. Whereas if we are just an open window, then where where is the boundary to that? But of course, that's the whole discipline of the spiritual path, is to see ourselves as children of God rather than uh, separate individuals here. And of course, the uh, way to do that is we think about what we're giving. We just We just think about love. We think about service. We see someone and we think how... Swamiji said that when he was beginning to lecture, and even still, he said he would feel that he was talking to Master in the audience. That everyone in the audience was, and that he was talking to Master in the audience. And several people said to him, "Well, don't you think that's, don't you think that's presumptuous to be a, a lecturing and teaching your own Guru?" And so he had to explain what he meant by that. Which is to him, master in the heart of everyone, is that part of them that's aspiring for God realization. And so, his, uh, when he would speak in front of a crowd, he would look at every person and he would, uh, his effort would be to awaken their desire for God. So it wouldn't be, I, Kriyananda, am giving them something, or even, you know, I as an instrument for God are giving something. He wasn't thinking about Kriyananda at all. He was just seeing someone and he was, he was praying that they would be awakened to God. And so you can imagine shaking hands after church, the thought would be, you know, may you, may you come into the light, may you be awakened into spirit, may what you have heard today change your life as it has changed mine. And then there's no uh, resistance in the wire. There's no concern about self. There's no thought. Oh, I hope you don't pull me down. And, you know, if that thought is really in one's mind, I mean, if one really feels that someone that you're encountering is an actual threat to your... that their magnet, their negativity is stronger than your positivity, one should heed that absolutely and not be at all presumptuous in thinking that it's okay. But most of the time, that's not that's not what's happening. And when it does, you just... Be dignified about it, but treating accordingly. For example, you may prefer to pronoun and not shake hands, and so on like that. Although at the same time, a great deal of aversion and anxiety is merely the thought that it's there. I had a, a certain uh, uncomfortableness with people invading my personal space, so to speak. And, it, and being in the position I am, people often did so it was very um, uncomfortable attitude to have, because people were just—they were unconscious of the way they behaved. And I finally realized that even if somebody is, ta- is very, standing very close to me, talking to me very loudly about something I'm not particularly interested in, what what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, n- nobody's torturing me, you know, nobody's locking me in a, a dark prison cell and not feeding me. I'm just standing someplace where a, a person of goodwill, or even of bad will, <laughs> but they're just there and they're just expressing themselves. It only becomes an issue if I put up a, a barrier to that and then their energy hits me and it starts, and it also, it's unpleasant for them. The word, I, I believe Swami was the one who told me, but I'm not sure, make yourself a sieve. Just Just be a sieve. So, their energy comes in and it passes right through you. What difference does it make? It doesn't stick unless you yourself. When I was uh, really learning to be at ease, basically, I was learning to be at ease with other people. I had a long standing habit of simply not being at ease with people. And I realized it was just a habit. There was nothing really happening, it was just a habit. It was likes and dislikes of the heart, which needed to be overcome. Divine Mother sent me a perfect case. The man was about six and a half feet tall. He was from somewhere in Eastern Europe, I'm not quite sure. So his English was not terrific, and his accent was a little hard to comprehend. He, I don't know if he was slightly deaf or not, but he spoke in a much louder voice than was necessary when he was leaning over me and was about six inches from my face. <laughs> and he developed a passion for talking to me. <laughs> so it was just wonderful practice. Because, you know, I would realize that I was creating some kind of an emergency. And there was absolutely no emergency happening at all. You know, he wasn't someone whose company I relished, but nor was there anything so terrible about him. He was just being himself. And my and fear would create a diminution of my energy, but acceptance of the, the weird quirks of human nature and... I became quite interested into how how it was to be him. You know, what does it feel like to present yourself to the world, even to make the body that he made? How does it feel like to present yourself to the world in that way? And I also began to think, he must get a lot of rejection. You know, and maybe I won't reject him and that's probably why he began to enjoy to talk to me he was only around for a matter of weeks and then i never saw him again but he was divine mother's little um final exam for me so still even now whenever whenever that begins to, to cross my mind i think what am i afraid of and then you just think of master think how master could absorb anyone and you just put him i usually put him right behind me and just feel like i'm just a window because I also feel, and we should all feel that, that anybody who's interested in me is not actually interested in me. They're interested in, in the masters who are behind me. Because I know, I know who I am without them. And I know who I have become through them. And therefore, that's what they're really interested in. And the less, and this is where don't think of yourself, but the less I'm in the story, the better it's going to go. In the early years of Ananda when people were quite, not quite tuned in to who Swamiji was on more than one occasion somebody would say well I don't really you know I don't really tune into Swamiji but I like you meaning me I would say well really you actually like Swamiji much more than you know <laughs> because there's nothing that I'm offering you that didn't come from him you know if you want to receive it through this window, that's all right, but you should know what you're receiving. But that was my way of, of maintaining my own integrity in a situation. But it was also my way of protecting myself. Because as long as that's clear in my mind, that's just Swami shaking hands. As long as it was Kriyananda he felt exhausted. As soon as it became master, master had infinite energy. What is the difficulty and what an honor to serve. You know, and people who are icky because people are icky, just because they just aren't adept. Not everyone in the world has the karma to be attractive. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily icky inside, they just might have what Swami used. I love the way Swami's wordsmithing. He says, yes, she has an unfortunate manner, is how he put it, (laughs) you know, when somebody was just really difficult to deal with. Yes, they have an unfortunate manner. But many people of good heart have a very unfortunate manner so we needn't panic over it or feel threatened by it it's it's like we may in our lives actually be compelled into being in relationship with people who are really really difficult even you know i have these probably having been born jewish in 1947 i have these pictures in my mind of real persecution and and probably also having been a revolutionary in many lifetimes and ended up in prison for my activities these are just my own I believe these are my samskaras so I often measure things against actually really being in the company of people who who really wish me ill not people who merely have an unfortunate manner but in the company of really dark forces so I would like to have trained myself to be steadfast in the face of minor inconveniences so that there will be some confidence in the presence of God in case the stakes are accidentally raised really high. And that's just my way of thinking. It may not be everyone's, but why not? I mean, even just to imagine, what if you were suddenly in a position where there was some really evil person who wanted to harm people? And you might be in a position to prevent that harm from happening. You want to not be afraid. And the only way, when I asked Swami a question like that, how to, be, how to know God's will in a moment of crisis, serious crisis, he said to practice when it's easier. So if we allow ourselves to become disconcerted by small events, what will we do in the face of large events? I accidentally said to someone once, it was probably the worst thing I ever said to someone. Fortunately, she's forgiven me. She tended... Um, She tended to panic easily And make mountains out of mole hills And and I became impatient with her My only excuse is this was a long time ago And I actually said to her If you're not careful Master's going to send you a real test Yeah, that was about as bad as it could get It was awful But I was actually speaking to myself It was unfortunate that I spoke it out loud You're panicking over all these small things What if something really big happens to you? And that was when I realized that I needed to get myself in hand because here's one more last part of this, and then we'll go on to another question i have a i'm very um i guess the word is sensitive um i'm not quite- i'm not quite psychic, but I have a lot of intuition and i'm also just i'm just very observant so i I often tend to know what's going on around me just because i am i i think i have extra brain cells I'm not really sure. But I think I have more of them operating. Um, this is not a gift, it's just a fact. I seem to have a lot of brain cells operating. So I, I always was very, very sensitive. And I wasn't very sensitive, I was very, very sensitive. You know, I'm just so very, very sensitive. And so therefore, you know, other people can do these sorts of things, but I'm, I'm very, very sensitive. <laughs> and I was, mm, I actually thought it was a virtue. You know, because I'm very sensitive. You understand? <laughs> okay. So, then I was teaching a class uh, with a companion teacher, uh, a man named Raghu, and he's a big man, well over six feet tall, strong, great singer, big voice. He would lead kirtan. He was just—he could have fifteen people in his kirtan band, and he could just run them all. You know, they didn't even have to rehearse. He could just run them all. He was so powerful. We're teaching this class on affirmations and we've sort of divided it up and it's time for us to do an affirmation with the class. He's gone into Master's Book of Affirmations and all of a sudden next to me, and he's you know—he's twice, at least twice as big as I am in cubic inches, he's just really a big fellow. And he starts saying, I am strong, I am brave, I am brave, I am strong, like this. And I immediately go, I am weak, I am small. (laughs) (laughs) I am sensitive, I am sensitive. (laughs) It was like he completely overwhelmed me with that affirmation. And when I tell people about affirmations, I always say, don't do an affirmation that's so much bigger than you. That you immediately subconsciously repudiate it. I didn't even repudiate it subconsciously. It was like I wanted to get far away from him. But then that was the moment when I thought, oh my gosh, my whole life I've been saying, I'm delicate, I'm sensitive, I'm weak, I can't do this. You know, and I thought it was a virtue. And I I made a resolution and I just started in with him. I am brave, I am strong. I matched him word for word on that. And I just really reversed my whole self-concept at that point. It's it's like, well, I'll actually tell you something. When I was 16, my my father, both my parents were wonderful. My mother was very sweet and very devoted to being a mother. She loved raising children, the three of us. And my father was extremely moral. Very ethical, very honorable. So, I mean, I'm just incredibly grateful. They gave me such a good foundation. And uh, when I was 16, uh, in the town that I lived in, which was still El Paso, Texas, the department store hired one or two teenagers from each of the local high schools, and they called us Young Careerists. You know, it was just a ploy to get teenagers in there, and it was good PR for the store and they gave us special little uniforms and we were 16 but we were just retail clerks in this store and so I got the job because I talked my way into it as I have done almost everything in my life Um, but I didn't really enjoy the work especially because they as a plum because they thought it was the prime position they put me in the teenage fashion department not realizing that that was the absolute worst place to put me because I scorned fashion at that point. And the clothes were really badly made and they were just scamming the teenagers. And it was just, you know, it was supposed to be like most girls would have loved that position. I just couldn't stand it. So I behaved rather badly And there. Eventually they moved me over to sheets and towels, <laughs> which was something people actually needed. And I was very happy to sell them sheets and towels and I did well. But during the interim, when I was in the wrong department, In some context, the manager of the store met my father socially. And uh, she knew that, you know, she knew who he was. And they were talking about me in the store. And the manager, and this is why she was the manager, is because she was so capable of saying truth in a very positive way. She said, I believe your daughter is too intelligent for retail sales. That's how she put it. (laughs) So my father comes home to me and he was not pleased because he knew what she was really saying is that I was arrogant and unpleasant and insulting and lots of things that I shouldn't have been. And he said to me really simply, if you're that intelligent, he said, you should have been able to keep them from knowing it. And, you know, that, that really stuck in my mind. And it came back to me. In other words, think about them. What are you doing? You know? And uh, it came back to me when I was sitting next to Ragu. You know, if you're that spiritually sensitive, you ought to be able to face anything without flinching. I mean, this idea that it makes you weak, whoa, that is really backwards. And so since that point, I've actually tried to become tough. Why would he not be tough? Master wasn't afraid of anything. Swami wasn't afraid of anything. Now, of course, you have to be realistic. And when I know someone is more negative than I am positive, I avoid them. But I don't just make that call um, unless I'm really sure it's the truth. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Another question or thought? okay shamani you're always good for a good question <laughs> uh-huh. um so this may be coming back to the basics a little but right. um you know that's now that there's so many different healing approaches out there and even after people come to our path and join in and maybe even take kriya uh, there are a lot of people who don't understand kind of the essence of what Master offered through healing, and many times people still feel the need to go out there and explore other, other ways of doing things. So if you could just kind of touch on the essence of Master's healing, just so we can... Yeah. Um, that's a very complicated question, because the way most religious institutions handle something like that. They say, ours is the best and you shouldn't do anything but us. And uh, that's not an untrue statement even on the path of self-realization, not ours is the best and you shouldn't do anything but us. But attunement is subtle. And the way in which a person has power in what they do is not just a question of uh, technique it's also a question of becoming attuned to a certain vibration and then being able to be a channel for that vibration and on the path of discipleship the the we we are part of a as swami called it a particular ray of grace which is a very interesting statement and he actually described the music that swamiji has received and and given to us as it is as, as a uh, perfectly in tune with that ray of grace which is why singing and listening to his music is such an important part of our sadhana you know the choir and all of that and the more people can sing his music it puts us into that ray of grace now some other healing modalities come from such a mental level that there really isn't an actual alternative ray it's just a mental level but others involve even initiations and things like that which at least purport to to make you a channel for some kind of a divine force and you we are changed by what flows through us so if we spend time being a channel for even another valid ray it, it's going to affect our magnetism. Now, the degree to which that's helpful or not helpful is, is, to my mind, not a question you can make a dogma about. Because once you make a dogma about it, you've taken away from people the opportunity to discover the truth from their own experience. Um, there's a, a story in the book, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him, that actually involves Diana, who lives here, Dhyanaji, who's the one of the co-leaders of this, and when she was very early on the spiritual path, very early, um, she was learning a, a Kriya Yoga, and she was also learning Reiki at the same time. And she was with Swamiji in a car. They were going somewhere. And she, being a very enthusiastic type, and not really knowing that much about this path yet, and very little about Swami, she said, you know, I'm learning Reiki. It's so terrific. I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. I'm... And then Swami just turned to her and said, Oh, if it's that good, perhaps I should learn it. That was all he said to her. And her instinctive response was, Well Swami, you don't need it like that. And th- and that was the end of the conversation. Nothing else more came of it. Time passed, she got more interested in um the path of Kriya Yoga, and she lost interest in the Reiki path, and it just went away. Ten years later, she said, if I, I hope I have this accurately, about ten years later she remembered that conversation and she thought to herself why did I say that he didn't need it and then she realized it was because he was drawing so much from master that it was clear that he didn't need to supplement it with anything and then she thought herself at that time especially she was drawing so little from master (laughs) that she wanted to supplement it from any direction that seemed more accessible to her and then now, when she was 10 years onto it, she realized that the challenge was still the same. Which is, if Swami could draw everything that he needed from Master's Path, then the challenge for her was to see whether she could do it or not. And so, you know, that, that is really what's represented. But, but Swamiji, that doesn't mean you're not interested in other things. But I, I know people often have come to me over the years, you'll love this book. It's almost the same as Master's teachings. And I think, huh, if it's almost the same. (laughs) But I have to be honest and say that I have seen people helped by getting another expression that's almost the same as Master's teachings and that in some way they can receive something that they were blocked from receiving. At the same time, Master's healing methods, his techniques... I think they're just a gold mine, but they're but they're more of a challenge for some people because it's not as clear cut. It requires more intuition. Um, it's not as systematized yet as some of these others are. The promises are not as explicit. So it's not for me to say to someone you should do this. I just sort of put in front of them what the realities of being a disciple are, if they are a disciple, and then let them figure it out for themselves because nobody likes to be told what to do. And nobody actually ever believes anyone when you tell them either. You know, we only really believe our own experience. So I think it's more important to give people the principles and then let them decide. And then what they do with it is up to them. In the name of Ananda, we need to be loyal to our teaching. I mean, that's, that's how I feel about it. If we're representing Ananda in an Ananda context... We need to present the teachings that we offer because that's our commitment to people. That's our commitment to the masters also. On one's own time, in private, you know. And sometimes people will become a disciple of master who are well-established in some other modality, maybe even have a profession in some other modality. And they will find that becoming a disciple strengthens them in that modality. And so it's not for me to say, you know, which way it's going to go. Fair enough? It's a good question because it always comes up. But, it, but to come into an Ananda prayer circle and say, hey, let me teach you what I just learned down the street, um, that's not such a good idea. <laughs> Better to, to be faithful to what we're trying to do. Um, yes. Can we affirm for someone else? I'm sorry. Can we what? Can we affirm for someone else? Oh my goodness! Yes, you can do yes. all kinds of things okay. for other people. So, Swamiji's title on affirmations for self healing only refers to healing of the real, s- uh, healing. No. So, in what context does he actually say affirmations for self healing? What context? Meaning, who uses them, or what? Uh-huh. Who uses them? So, I, I somehow tended to think that you know. Affirmation implies that, you know, you use it for the self and somebody else cannot affirm for you. Well, actually, I'll tell you an interesting story. Uh, um, uh, a single mom, a woman who raised her son by herself, was, ve- was a very good mother and very devoted to her son, and they were very close. Then he got to be 13, 14, 15, which is a real changing age for everyone. That's, Master says, until the age of 12, the ego is slightly in abeyance. And what that means is, that it's not that they're not willful or don't have the full intelligence and destiny of their nature, but when the ego is a little bit in, in abeyance, a child does not necessarily identify deeply with its own actions. And so there's even, there's a certain freedom. And they, like, uh, Davy tells the story about her own little son. Uh, he was called Das at that time. And he walked up to her, he was about four, and he said, I didn't do nothing, mommy. And she said, honey, where did you not do nothing? He said, in the bedroom closet. <laughs> where he, and what he had done is he had found a, their supply of vitamins and he'd opened all the bottles and poured it all onto the onto the floor. <laughs> uh, and and Nitai, when he teaches about how to work with young children, he says, you have to understand that they don't define themselves by their behavior. And if you say you're a bad boy because you did something bad, they feel very unfairly treated. Something bad may have happened. They may need to understand that that action is not acceptable. But if you define them by their actions, they're quite bewildered because there isn't that connection. And then suddenly, around the age of 12, they become their behavior. And they tend to do it. I haven't raised children, but I've seen it and I've heard of it. They tend to suddenly identify with their behavior. So you will say to your son or daughter, with whom you had a perfectly harmonious relationship for all these years, Honey, I think you need to clean up your room. And the daughter will answer, You hate me. You've always hated me. (laughs) And it's rather startling news because really, (laughs) because all of a sudden in criticizing their behavior, you have criticized them and it's 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 suddenly very very confusing okay so go back to my friend in affirmations she used to do a lot of affirmations for her son you know she would visualize his spirit and when she would meditate she would affirm for him you know i am brave i am strong i am the friend of all you know i i i live selflessly for the joy of god and it was a, it was a prayer it was a way of praying for him that she would project toward him these positive ideas he, he was and is a very fine man, so she did many things correctly with him one way or another. But all of a sudden, when he became 13, 14, he became extremely resentful of her. And and she found it very, very difficult to understand. And she was praying to God, you know, what's happening? And intuitively it came to her, he could feel those affirmations. And he felt her pressuring him to be a certain way. And he resented it because he wanted to be his own man. Isn't that interesting? And she felt it was true. She immediately stopped and she started saying, Divine Mother, he's always been your child. You take care of him. And she said, and he became harmonious with her again as soon as she stopped. So part of what the question is, is a question we ourselves have to ask. And this is the most challenging part of praying for people. Are we wanting them to be different because their situation makes us suffer? And so even our prayer is actually not really for them, it's for me. This is the Vaishya level of the, of the caste system, the second caste. I mean, it's Vaisha is considered to be merchant. This is subtle, but when we talk about that whole thing, which is a whole different discussion longer than we will get into here, Um, on the Vaisha level each of these castes are defined not by your profession but by your attitude toward life and how you try to alleviate suffering and how you try to find happiness. The Vaisha level is I I feel good when the world conforms to what I think it should be. And the higher level the Kshatri is I live by divine principle and I happiness is when i live by divine principle and the the only transformation i need is to transform myself okay but at the Vaisha level we're insecure and unhappy if the world does not match our picture and i mean this is very tough because somebody you love is suffering you know that if they change their attitudes or their behavior they would be better off people are in a bad way and you want it to be different but if there's anything in your prayer that's selfish, then to that extent, one, it will be less effective. And two, it may not, it may actually cause a kind of subtle resentment in the person you're praying for. You know, if your child is into very bad habits and you're constantly projecting on them that they're doing the wrong thing and they ought to do the right thing, they're not stupid. They can feel it. And far from being inspired to change, They'll become more and more rebellious because there you are trying to make them be different. Especially the people close to you will feel that. Now, that does not mean we should be indifferent to people doing things that are sabotaging their futures. I mean, that would be unrealistic. But everybody has their own destiny. You know, Swamiji speaking about children, which is, is not the only thing we're we're talking about, but speaking about children, Swamiji said, The father and the mother create the physical vehicle for the soul to uh, uh, express its destiny. But the father and the mother do not create either the soul or its destiny. And that, that concept is true, of course, of everyone. We don't have as much of an illusion of ownership and responsibility as parents have for their children but and and parents do have a lot of responsibility for their children it just has to be exercised properly but when we love someone we have to love them for their sake and not for our sake and we have to love them for their own highest good and so this is well swamiji grew up in romania and when and romania was not a very advanced country and of course he was born in 1926 so a lot of Technological, medical advances have come since then. But when he was a child in Romania, he got colitis, and so they took him off all milk products, and as a consequence, he had a lack of calcium and he had very bad teeth. But in Romania, they didn't have Novocaine. So as a child, when he had to go get fillings, they had to drill without Novocaine, which you can imagine for a child, even it just makes me shudder even now. So he said, Oftentimes the dentist would not completely drill out the cavity, but he would just drill until he couldn't stand the child screaming anymore, and then he would fill in the cavity, which of course Swamiji said caused him endless problems because the the teeth would decay under the filling, and you know all his life he had difficulty because of that. So oftentimes we're like that. We see someone going through something really hard for them. That is, we we know it's it's just simply a fact. It has to be a necessary karma or else God would not be imposing it on them. It has to be suffering for a higher cause, but we just want it to stop. And often that's what we actually pray. You know, please have it be different. And if you actually ask, it's because I can't stand it. But what we really want to pray for is to please... Help the soul to become free of whatever delusion is binding them. And the prayer that I came with, I learned this in the last years of my parents' lives when my mother had Parkinson's and my father toward the end, his mind was not, I don't know if he really, I don't think he really had Alzheimer's, but I think he had something happen to his brain and he just wasn't quite himself for a long time. And for a long time, I just wanted it all to be different and then it crossed my mind that my parents were in their early 80s or approaching it by that time and they'd made a lot of decisions in their lives and that this wasn't this wasn't like some big radical they hadn't suddenly been transported into somebody else's karma this was the inevitable next step of the trajectory they'd been on the whole time and it wasn't necessarily bad it was just different and it was absolutely necessary so what did I really want for them? And I realized that a certain amount of my prayers were for my convenience, which was a very hard realization for me to have, It would just be more convenient if my parents did this or did that. But it wasn't what they wanted, and it wasn't even what they needed for their soul's freedom. So I came up with a prayer that I've used ever since. Divine Mother, whatever you're trying to teach them, would you please help them to learn it? And I put my anxiety into that prayer. You need to help them learn this. And I would pray for their receptivity, humility, wisdom, devotion. You know, I know you have a plan here and you need to get on with it. And then I would say, in whatever you're trying to teach me, you have to also give me the receptivity to learn it because I don't seem to be doing very well. And that prayer, I could put all the intensity of my love for them and my concern for their well-being but it was in a way that was not selfish and so if they have to go through some difficult period at this point if it makes them free why would I not want it there's this wonderful story about Adi Shankaracharya and one of his disciples And the woman apparently was very worried. She was a very worried person. She was always anxious about everything that would happen. That's how the story goes. And you've all heard it, I think. And so apparently the guru wanted her to do something. And she said, well, you know, what if I die? And he said, die. And then she did. Just right there, she was finished. And that's how the story is usually told, right? But of course, her guru was on both sides of the veil so the part that I wonder about is, what happened then? You know, there he is with her, now she's dead, and, and he says, this is how I imagine something the effective, and how did that work for you? You know? <laughs> and what did you learn from that? And it's like, he didn't care. She was gonna learn something. And if you're, if you're a mother, and, and we have to be divine mother to everyone around us, if you're a mother, and your child misbehaves, you don't let him or her get away with it, because that's not loving. Even if the child doesn't like it. My my sister's son was a challenge to raise, and I remember when she was when I was with her. He was very strong-willed, which of course made him into a fine man, but it made him a challenge as a little boy. He's an attorney now, and he was an attorney then. He was just four. <laughs> but he, he demanded explanations and had good arguments for pretty much everything but I remember we were all at my parents' house and she was about to go back to her own home and he was not wanting to get into the car he was just wanting to do something else she was being very definite to him and she was telling him he needed to do this and if not these were the consequences and he kept arguing with her and she looked at him and she said when I speak to you like this have I ever changed my mind? He thought about it for a moment and said, No, Mommy. (laughs) And she said, And I am not going to start now. (laughs) It was just like, This is it. And that's how Divine Mother works with us. You know, Do you actually think that merely because you don't want this to happen, I'm going to change my mind? And we need to be on Divine Mother's side, not take this suffering away, but give them the wisdom that this suffering is trying to teach them then we find, oh, there's so much power in that prayer. Because that's really God's prayer. And often, in fact, circumstances will change because then we're giving energy to the right aspect of the people we're praying for. And also we're giving energy to the right aspect of ourselves, which is the part of ourselves that is also surrendered to God and not the part that's just trying to find an easy birth for ourselves. Does that make sense?